And now, the Street Photography Magazine podcast with your host, Bob Patterson. Welcome back to the Street Photography Magazine podcast. I'm Bob Patterson, publisher of Street Photography Magazine. And today we have Mark Schumann with us. Mark uh, lives in, well, I was going to say New Mexico, but he moved to Arizona. He's in uh, Sedona, Red Rocks of Sedona with all the rich people getting their skin treatments and things. I don't know what, I don't know what they do out there. But anyway, yeah, Mark, uh, God, he's the... No, go ahead. You were going to say something? Oh, just good morning, and thank you for having me, Bob. Good morning. It's still, well, yeah, it's still morning here. Good morning. And, yeah, it's good to be with you. Um, Mark is, um, well, he's fairly recently retired from the news. Well, he was in the newspaper business, and he was in the photo tour business. Mark does, he does a lot of landscape photography and wildlife photography, but he's also a damn fine street photographer. And I should say documentary photographer. Um, Mark had, uh, he came on our radar a couple of years ago. He submitted an article um, about, uh, about the homeless. And it was, it's called, uh, what's it called? Yeah, Homeless in the Land of Plenty. And we, we saw that and we published it right away. And uh, then I've been following him a lot. I see his stuff on Facebook a lot. And, you know, about street photography, landscape, wildlife. And it's good stuff. Really good stuff. Mark actually makes photos that people would want in their house. Most people don't want good street photography hanging in their living room. But your stuff... <laughs> your landscapes and wildlife are, are beautiful just beautiful Thank um you, yeah well you're welcome you're welcome and um so anyway before we get into into the actual photography mark why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself tell us about your journey in photography and you know how you wound up out west from from the beaches of florida sure i grew up in, and was born and grew up in vero beach florida and i got started in photography in ninth grade, at the end of the cross-country season, my father, who was the editor of the paper there, asked me if I wouldn't mind taking a camera to the cross-country picnic. And those pictures turned out well, so I started photographing the basketball season, and then I wound up photographing uh, sports and news. I did a feature every week called The Inquiring Photographer, and I would go out to um, you know, shopping areas and just ask a current events question of people take their photograph and it was a fun feature to do it was a small twice weekly newspaper at the time when it was sold in the late 90s it was a seven-day daily but back in the early and mid-70s it was twice weekly kind of like the newspaper in lake wobegon minnesota you know <laughs> micro local news that paper's uh harold star and it's owned by a gentleman named harold star <laughs> oh you're kidding According to Garrison, uh, uh, oh, 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 okay, that one, that newspaper. It's been a while since I listened to that show. Photographs from the cross-country picnic, just the kind of local news that goes well in a paper that size. So I enjoyed photography in high school and then in college for the Macon Telegraph and News, where I went to college. And after graduating from college, I went into the marketing and advertising side of the newspaper business. First back in Vero Beach with the family paper, and then later with the St. Petersburg Times. From there, I went into the Presbyterian ministry. I missed the newspaper Whoa. business. Went back into, I had a small publishing company in Vero Beach. I put out a monthly news magazine, uh, a business journal, a seniors publication. When I acquired the seniors publication, I was in my mid-30s, and it was titled 50 Plus. And that seemed like a long way out at the time. <laughs> now 50, 50 is 15 years behind me. And yeah. So I, I did that. And then we moved to Santa Fe, New Mexico, where I began as a part-time job giving photo tours. I would only wait until I was paid before I'd tell people I couldn't believe I was getting paid to do that. It was just so, in, so enjoyable to take folks out into that beautiful northern New Mexico landscape. Wow, so you were a you were a pastor, huh? 
Yeah, I went to Columbia Seminary, which is in yeah. Georgia, and then served Palmasia Presbyterian in Tampa, Florida. Wow. You know, like I said, that article that you submitted, you know, got, you know, kind of got you on the radar uh, of of the folks here at the magazine. And since then, I've been, you know, following your work. And the next thing I know is you published a book. I, did. I didn't know you were going to publish a book. And uh, there's that book. And I thought, wow. And then you happened to send me a copy, which I thank you for, because mm-hmm. it's it's a beautiful book. And uh, first of all, I want to want to talk about this. So you did, you know, an article and then a book about photographing the homeless. I don't know if you realize it, but you stepped square on the third rail of street photography, homelessness. It's like, well, first, we rarely publish gratuitous photos of the homeless. If somebody is walking by and they see somebody sleeping on a park bench, hey, that's a street photograph. They send it in and it will very rarely, if ever, get published. But somebody who does a thoughtful article, somebody you can really tell cares and is trying to help these people get through, you know, a very difficult problem. Um and that really captures our attention. So yeah, I got to thank you for doing that. But anytime we publish an article like yours, you know, we get hate mail, mm. you know, from well-meaning people. I, I don't understand it. But, uh, you know, because you're certainly not taking advantage of them. Maybe I shouldn't have told you that. But uh, I'm sorry that happened. I think it's funny. In the article, I... I believe I acknowledged that there are different views about whether it's yeah. to photograph the homeless. You could ask whether it's appropriate to photograph a, a child who's just been the victim of a hospital bombing. What, what we're talking about is documenting a, yeah. an aspect of life that needs to be seen, it needs to be understood, and it needs to be addressed. And none of that will happen if we don't s- see what's happening out there. Yeah. Anymore, it's pretty hard to miss. You know what I thought uh, was interesting, and I think that's probably what really captured my attention when you when you submitted it. You said, I don't know if you did this on purpose. You said, I traveled around the country. And by the way, he did. He traveled all around the country. He said, I visited places like Cleveland, Akron, Ohio, Charlottesville, Virginia. I think you were on the Amtrak, weren't you? Is that what you said? I and I go, hey, wait a minute. He was here in my town. <laughs> He was in the town where I used to live. And I didn't even know it. I would have come down and bought you a cup of coffee. I didn't know you were there either at the time. Yeah, that's funny. I mean, how did you happen to pass through here? Our Amtrak line doesn't really, you know, goes up to D.C. And, and uh, well, we do have another one that goes from New well, Orleans. The last trip that I took for the project um, was, and I'll explain how I got started too. But Yeah, I, yeah. At the end, I, I wanted to go to New York City and see an exhibit of the work by Dorothea Lange at the Modern Museum of Art. Oh, yeah. And uh, because her coming across a book of her work was a confirmation for me that I should do this project, and I'll explain that. But okay. I, went, I went from New York south, working my way to uh, New Orleans, Louisiana, and then flew home and then watched the news as. COVID rates spiked all along the East Coast. Mm-hmm. And I was that was the last trip for the project anyway, but it was at that time in early 2020. But it was back in uh, 2015. My wife and I had a, we were living in Taos actually that year. We had opened an art gallery there. So I was babysitting a gallery. And one morning, it occurred to me that I, I should find some way to make use of my background in photojournalism, do, uh-huh. do something other than babysitting a gallery. And how might I do that? And it occurred to me that the homeless, rising homeless crisis all across the country, not just on the West Coast, not just oh, no. on the East Coast, but all across the country, need, needed to be documented. And... So I, I decided that might be something I would do. And later that day, I went into a bookstore, and there on the front table was a book by Dorothea Lange, the photographer from the Depression era, a mm-hmm. contemporary of Ansel Adams, who took that iconic image of the migrant mother 
in Southern California. And I took crossing that book, that, that crossing my path that day as a sign that I should pursue the project. So for the next five years, off and on, I traveled all across the country, uh, sometimes by Amtrak, sometimes by car, sometimes I flew. I went to more than 70 cities all across the country, wow. meeting with homeless people and providers, people providing services to the homeless. I interviewed more than 100 uh, homeless people and service providers. Most of the photographs in the book are portraits, and they're only taken after I've spent some time visiting with the people, learning about them and about their experiences and their circumstances. And the objective behind the portrait is to help the, the reader make a connection with this homeless person as a person. So I hope the portraits do that. Maybe a 5% of the images are more documentary and mm -hmm. conditions out there on the street. And, and the re remainder of them are street portraits. Yeah, they, I mean, the photos are quite good. They're very powerful and very personal. And um, I can see that kindness you were talking about coming through. Thank you. You see it in their eyes, too. Yeah. One of the things that most impressed me was the resilience, despite the difficult circumstances, the stressful conditions that people living on this, the unhoused, you know, about half of, on any given night, about 600,000 Americans are without stable housing. Mm -hmm. About half of them are unsheltered. Uh, the, the half that are not unsheltered are in, they might be couch surfing with family or friends, so they might be in temporary subsidized mm -hmm. housing. They may be in a shelter uh, that's just a day shelter. You don't imagine trying to, uh, to look after your belongings in a situation like that. Uh, and half of them are out on the street without any shelter at all. Yeah, that's, yeah, it's it's so tough. I, I, a guy, my wife's next door neighbor, when she was growing up, he's maybe, he's the same age as her brother, he's a few years old, younger, um, wound up on the street, had a, a good family, a nice home. And but he was bipolar, and this family didn't know where he was for a long time, and he was just living on the street in Cleveland in the winter time, which is a nasty place in the winter time. Don't get me wrong, Cleveland's a really nice town, but it's not a place you want to be outside in January. Nasty like the time. Terms of harsh weather, yeah, very harsh, very harsh. And uh, it's it's very sad how that happens. It seems like a number of the people could have support from families and friends, but they have uh, some type of mental, you know, mental health issues. Among the un among the unhoused homeless, the ones living on the street or in woods, for that matter, about eighty percent of them have drug addiction, mental health, or alcohol issues, mm -hmm. or a combination of those. But we, we look at the street homeless because those are the homeless who are visible to us and come to conclusions about the entire homeless population. Yeah. Of those who are not on the street, many of them have, it's more of an economic issue. The, the cost of housing has significantly outpaced increases in wages and that's mm -hmm. been true for decades. And the gap continues to grow. People who are living on the edge financially, maybe just one paycheck away or one, um, one car breakdown away from yeah. things falling apart for them. And, you know, if you, if you can't fix your car, you can't get to work, you lose your yeah. job, you can't make a yeah. rent payment. And now you have an eviction on your record and it just becomes a downward spiral for so many people. The housing, the cost of housing is by no means the only reason, but it is the primary driver of this problem. Yeah, and it's even tougher in places like California, New York, where the price of housing is so high. 
you know, with, he, uh, those, with those issues, mental health, drug addiction, alcoholism, come these behavioral problems that cause one to be sympathetic for the folks who are trying to run a business in an area where the homeless count is high. Yeah. You, you need to decide your customers need access to, to the sidewalk. And I, so I completely understand and have some sympathy for those concerns as well. Yeah, yeah. I'd like to take a quick break to thank the Street Photography Magazine subscribers for your support. We couldn't do this without you. You may have noticed that we don't sell advertising or sponsorships in the podcast or inside Street Photography Magazine itself. And that's because we want to be completely objective about the work we publish and the services and gear that we cover. Our only constituent is you, our listeners and readers. So if you like what we're doing, you can support the show by subscribing to Street Photography Magazine. It's only $5 per month, and you can do it by visiting streetphotographymagazine.com slash subscribe. And now back to the show. You ever run into um, a guy who goes by the name of Suitcase Joe? I've seen his work. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like he's doing good work. And now I, I, I had an opportunity to interview him maybe a year and a half ago. I think it was, might not have been too long after we published your story, which was January of 22. I follow him on Instagram, in fact. Oh, do you? Yeah. LA yeah. was the second trip. I, my first trip was to Chicago and the second trip to LA, where I photographed there in, um, in Skid Row. Since then, that was back in 2015, you'll find homeless encampments way, way out beyond Skid Row. Yeah, that's what I've heard. And he's, uh, Suitcase Joe is doing a lot of his work in and around Skid Row. Yeah. Yeah. So what's, what's, it, what's it like to approach some of, you know, some of these folks? I mean, is it, especially when you first started, was it, scary or were you already used to it were you maybe doing outreach as part of your ministry you know years ago or and and how do you go about doing it if somebody's interested in you know just reaching out whether they want to take photographs or just help yeah i got more comfortable with it over time but was not 100 percent comfortable at the beginning yeah you know, Brian Lloyd Duckett talks about getting over the notion that you're doing something wrong with street photography. Yeah, well, yeah, that's true. And you made mention earlier of their different, their strong opinions about photographing the homeless. Yeah. And there are strong views that it's not the thing to do. So that those voices were on my shoulder telling me I might be doing something wrong. Mm -hmm. so, I also felt like I was doing something important, but it, so I had conflicted in my own mind, conflicted views about it. And I took those out on the street with me. And I'm sure that showed up in my posture and my voice and a t timidity as I approached. Mm -hmm. uh, but in every case, I just explained what I was doing. And most folks um, are going to respond positively if they realize that you're genuinely interested in them. If yeah. somebody's had a bad day and that's easy enough to happen out on the street sure. at a time when they're just working through some frustration, you just have to be mindful of that and let that go and let them, you know, work through whatever they're working through and move on. So there was some times when I needed to do that. Yeah, because you really never know what uh, what's going through somebody's mind or what happened to them that day or that month or what health issue they have or whatever that cause them to to um, you know behave the way they do that's true of any of us at any yeah, time at any, at any time you're right you're right doubly, and it's doubly true if someone's living in those very stressful conditions stressful yeah. and uncomfortable dangerous for them yeah absolutely um you know what i'm going to ask i'm going to ask you about one other thing i'm going to Give me just a second. I'm going to go over and reach for a book on my bookshelf. I want to ask you about it or tell you about it. Hold on. Okay. Sorry to make 
sorry to make you all wait on me here, but uh, no, my uh, uh, my son gave me a, a very interesting book for my birthday. And uh, hold up, you can see, maybe you already know this book uh, called Dignity. It's, uh, oh, I, I highly recommend it. It's uh, by a guy named Chris Arnade, A-R-N-A-D-E. He was like a high-powered, um, I think he was like a bond trader on Wall Street. And he just left it. And he's he's good photographer, very good photographer, too. And um, he first started, he just went out, you know, to the, the Bronx and, you know, just, just tough areas in New York and just started meeting with people. He would hang out in McDonald's. And he did this all around the country, just hang out at McDonald's like all day and he'd just chat with people. And, uh, you know, it's all about how, you know, people nowadays are basically robbed of their dignity. You know, he's, he talks to a lot of people who have drug addiction and alcohol addiction. And and then he wrote this book. And it's it's just an excellent book. And uh, again, I got to thank my son for giving it to me. Um, oh, worth reading. Oh, yeah. We're we're on Zoom here, so so Mark yeah. can see. Yeah, it's called Dignity. Yeah, I think you would really like it. And we'll anybody, and he's and he's a very good photographer as well. Um, and so he just like you, he just connected with these people, and he photographed ones who, who would allow him, and made, you know made a very personal connection. And he's, uh, I mean, if you look him up online, you know he's been on lots of television shows. Um, and written some very good articles and very insightful articles, uh, even about, you know, the state of our politics today and why people um, are, you know, gravitate towards certain populist individuals because of some of the things they've, they've gone through. Lost their dignity. Makes them susceptible. Exactly. Exactly. He has some really interesting insight in, into really why things are happening the way they are at this time. Um, excellent book. Excellent book. He doesn't take any sides politically or anything, but you know, he, but he, you can tell he really cares about the people. So, all right, Chris, you can you can send me a commission check for the books you sell from this. <laughs> Just get. I should probably have him on here, but I mean, he's been on. Uh, you know, the major news networks as a talking head and things like that. So anyway, I just I just thought of that book as you were talking about this. So um, also, you do a lot of a lot of landscape and wildlife photography. And I, I just want to say one thing. I, I noticed, I mean, I can tell, I mean, you really connect well with people. You, 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 you know, you're really aware of their humanity, and I think you photograph it very well. And then when I see your, I see some of your wildlife photos, you seem to bring out uh, human expressions in bears, especially the, the ones you did on the, on the bears in Alaska. I mean, many of the photos, the bears have human-like expressions. I don't know if you're purposely looking for those or you just gravitate to them or maybe you never even realized you did that i i have to say i didn't realize that i did that yeah well you do the bear we were close to them as in within 30 feet it looked like it we were i close. um i saw um I saw a photographer it was a professional photographer like a national geographic photographer I forget who it was and he was showing his work of bears, pictures of these big bears cap, catching salmon in the stream and, you know, the same thing you did. And and it looks like he's out in the wild doing it. And then he had stepped back with a wide lens. And here there was a, he was standing on a platform with like 20 other people who were just a few feet from this big bear. Were you in a place like that or were you... Did you oh, just happen may... to be walking through the woods and you stumbled on them? From what you just described, that photographer may have been at Brooks Falls or maybe somewhere else. But okay. We were in Katmai National Park. Uh, yeah. Out on, a, 
out on a delta. So there was really nothing between us and the bear. Oh. Other than plenty of fish for them to eat. So there, our first line of defense, if you will, was that the bear were interested in fattening up for hibernation. Sure. There were plenty of fish for them to eat, which must, and they must know they, the fish tastes better than us. And they were about, <laughs> they're easier to catch too. Easier to catch. There were 10 of us and two guides and a, and a professional guide as well. So wow. the second line of defense, if you will, was the size of our group. They oh. aren't going to attract a group that they're not uh, going to. Uh, no, they're cowards, huh? They only go after individual hikers. Right. And then my third line of defense, I guess, was that I was pretty sure I was faster than at least some of the folks in the group. <laughs> That's all you got to do. <laughs> yeah. I don't need to be faster than the bear. I just need to be faster than you. <laughs> you know, to get a, any expression, you, you really need to get in and get the eyes properly exposed, mm -hmm. which is a challenge photographing the bear. Yeah, that can't be easy when you're using a long lens and, and you know, shallow depth of field. But it's important to see those eyes. And yeah. Get, oh, absolutely. It's, you know, it's just not interesting if you don't. If you don't see their eyes, and that's where you get the, the human-like expression. Yeah, go back and look at your website, and uh, and you know, and you get some really nice, um, really nice compositions too. The, there was a photo of um, like two bears kind of laying together, one on top of the other, with the, another one next to it. Um, it was a mother and her two cubs. Yeah, the mother and her two cubs. It was that's beautiful. You know, and I don't look at much work like that anymore. And I, I'm I'm going to start spending more time because it's, you know, it's a, it's an art in itself. When I was doing the homeless project, I was obviously out on the street. Yeah, that's, that's how I got interested in street photography. So between some of that homeless work, which I would consider documentary photography, I. I experimented with some street photography. Um, and just prior to that, I had taken a workshop uh, with a man uh, who had suggested that um, if you want to improve your photography, you should take up some other hobby. So the way I heard that, if I wanted to improve my landscape photography, I should do some other kind of photography as oh, well. That's great. That's a great point. Photography as a second hobby. Arthur Meyerson is that. A photographer's name. He had quite a career as a commercial photographer, and it does beautiful color work. Mm -hmm. He was just one fellow described him as you know the closest we have today to Ernst Haas. In fact, Arthur Meyerson studied with Ernst Haas. Beautiful color work. More more of the uh, you know artistic or aesthetic rather than street mm -hmm. think of those categories of uh, classic street photography or documentary photography or uh, aesthetic photography yeah. um, and his is really more aesthetic color is the subject in, mm -hmm. in work color is the subject yeah well i notice in your work your, your colors i don't i can't even put my finger on it but they're very they're not like oversaturated or anything like that. They're just, they're very rich and they're realistic. But I, I don't know what, do you have like a secret sauce to create such beautiful color? I really don't. I don't use any presets. Every, yeah. every, although I have been dabbling only recently, as in the last week, I downloaded a few Kodachrome presets. Mm -hmm. You the photographers, I, uh, draw inspiration from photographed in Kodachrome for National Geographic. Yeah. Sam Abel would be one. And Nathan Ben, who photographed for the Geographic 70s, 80s, and 90s. He has a book titled Kodachrome Memories. Oh, yeah, yeah. I've, I think I've seen that. So I was interested yeah. to see what some of my work might look like at applying those Kodachrome presets. But that's only been in the last week or so. Oh really? Okay, yeah, I, yeah. You know, Sam Abel lives not too far from me. Yeah, I hope you've had a chance. No, I haven't, and I've had 
many people would know him and they say, you know, you really ought to just give him a call. And I should. And William Albert Allard lives in the area as well. And I've yet to meet him. As name I was going to mention. I've got a couple. Oh, of I thought you were going to. It's on my show. Beautiful work. And I, I can't. Being out west. When I'm looking through their work of daydreaming of what, if I could press the reset. Well, I wouldn't want to press the reset button. But yeah. if I did, I'd make a strong effort at getting on the staff of the Geographic back in the 70s and 80s. Yeah, it was hard to do. Along with probably 100,000 other photographers who had oh, yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. I, I had a chance to see Sam Abel speak years ago when I was still in Cleveland. My son was a photojournalism major, and he came to town. We went to see him talk. And, and afterwards, you know, just a regular guy, just a really nice guy. And and uh, a lot of people went up to talk to him. And I told my son, I could go, go up and meet him, you know. No, no, I couldn't. He was too shy, you know. And uh, which was too bad. And uh, but he does have one of his books, which I now have. <laughs> he stopped photo. My son was a photojournalist. And uh, but now he's an engineer. Which is good. He earns a good living. Right. That's probably a more stable career for the long term. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I hope he picks it up again as a hobby, though. But, well, look, many people you mentioned the bond trader who is yeah. done that excellent work. Yeah. The digital camera provides, you've ever heard the expression that feedback is the breakfast of champions? Yeah. The feedback that's so much easier to get in the digital world is helping people become better photographers. It's, I agree it's with not you. the quality of the cameras. It's the quality of the work that's made possible because of the feedback. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that's an excellent point. So um, you were talking about, I guess, the the uh, pictorial pictorial nature of doing landscape photography. Do you ever apply what you know for creating beautiful compositions in the streets, or are you mainly focused on people when you're photographing on on the street? I'm working on. Um... I'm working on composition as well as moment. Um, let's see. I, I, I pulled this book off the shelf today. Um, Craig Sametko, S-E-M-E-T-K. <laughs> and he yes. talks about appreciating the composition from uh, Cartier-Bresson yeah. and the humor from Elliot Erwitt and yeah. putting them together in one image. You know, the growing edge for me in, in my street photography right now is that I'm working on is to get more interesting moments. If yeah. you think subject context moment, for, I was content early on to get a picture of someone striding across the street when they were in full stride. Uh -huh. Yeah. 20 frames a second. That's easier to get than it used to be with a Minolta SRT 101. Uh -huh. I have one of those. But I take about 10,000 steps a day, and many other people do too. And you multiply, even if people are only taking 5,000 steps a day, a lot of steps are taken every day. That can't in and of itself constitute a moment. Something for me now at this point, something more needs to be happening. In fact, I'm going to go photograph in February with Brian Lloyd Duckett. I uh, know. Excellent. Work yeah. specifically on that. You know, seeking out more interesting moments. The context is that composition part, partly, right? The subject, the context that they're in, and then some moment that's happening, an interaction between two people or whatever else it might be. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, so you're going to be working with them in London? I'm looking forward to that, two full days. Two one full on days, one-on-one. On one. That's wonderful. And that's right. And before that, you're going to be in Paris for how long? Uh, the whole trip will be about 10 days. And really? two, okay. three of those days, I'm going to go to London and spend the time with, with Mr. Duckett. Really? So what are you going to do in Paris? Wander the streets. Uh, it's a time of the year when it's easier to mm -hmm. like 
imagine you're a local, the, the tourism uh, traffic will be significantly less in February Definitely. in the summer months. And just follow my nose, if you will. Yeah, the um, yeah we were in Europe in August, which is probably the worst month of the year because that's when all the locals are on vacation, on holiday. And it was crazy, absolutely crazy. We live now in Sedona, Arizona. It's perhaps yeah. the most beautiful place I have ever lived. Yeah. If it's possible to be better hiking than one would find in Santa Fe, that's true here. But this yeah. is exactly a street photography mecca. No, I wouldn't think so. If, uh, if I told you I'd give you $100 if you could take me to downtown Sedona, <laughs> I'd still have my $100 left at the end of the <laughs> Because there is no true downtown area, if you will. Yeah. Yeah, we have the same situation. We do have a down, small downtown, but it's great for hiking. Great for the outdoors, except in the summertime when it's hotter than holy hell here. But, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so it's tough to do street photography when, when there aren't a lot of people around, especially people who just kind of live their lives on the street. I mean, not sleeping on the street, but. And, and the busier the street is, the less visible you are. Exactly. The less obvious you are. Right. Yeah. 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 Especially if you're in a New York where there's lots of tourists running around with cameras. People just don't pay attention. Here, if I walk around with my camera, people pay attention. Yeah, I was thinking about like, earlier, earlier on when I was content taking a picture of someone just walking on the sidewalk. I was usually getting those from across the street with a longer lens. Nah, I don't do that. <laughs> I don't do that anymore either, but I, that's how I got started. And you have to get started wherever you're at. Well, you do. That's true. So when you go to Paris and you're going to shoot, what, what uh, you know, don't tell me the brand or anything, what kind of camera and lens are you going to have? I'm going to have their mirrorless cameras, but yeah. Uh, ESC, a 23 millimeter, a 35 millimeter, a 50 millimeter. Yeah. And I'll probably use the longer lenses at night. Brian mm -hmm. makes the point that, you know, if you get close to someone and it's dark, that, that can feel a little creepy. Yeah, that's a good point. People are a little more less comfortable with you being close to them at night mm -hmm. than in the daytime. I had not thought about it until he made that point on your podcast. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's uh, that's that's a very good point. Um, yeah, people get a little creeped out when you get close to them, especially at night. Now it's funny you brought up Craig Sumetko. Um, I was listening to him just the other day, and he was um, he mentioned how he worked with Elliot Irwin. Hmm. He was on a project. He was doing like a was it a book project or something. Maybe it was with Leica, and they teamed him up with Elliot Irwin. And they had like teamed different people up to do some kind of project. I think it was maybe in Japan or something. I thought, well, what an opportunity to work with somebody of that caliber. And I guess he learned so much from him. And then. And Irwood even commented on the humor in, in his work. Well, you know, some, um, he, he started out as a comedy writer. Yeah. And I think Irwood's probably got a great sense of humor to begin with. He does. Um, he does, yeah. uh, you know, especially his dog photos. You have to have a sense of humor to see the humor, maybe. Yeah. Oh, I think so. And, and matter of fact, uh, Sumetko even said that. He said he was always like, like, you know, the class clown. He didn't say, call himself the class clown, but he was, was always a pretty humorous guy. So he, I think he even said that that, um, you know, gave him the ability or just the inclination to notice the humor in things. And his, his work is very humorous. Have you ever seen it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I really like it. I had one of those weak moments. I was looking at, a picture of Sumetko with Elliot Irwin. Oh, you did? Okay. And Sumetko has 
a Leica hanging over his shoulder, hanging on his shoulders, like, oh, I got to have one of those. <laughs> of course. It's so tempting. Yeah, yeah. He's um, he's like a Leica ambassador, I believe. And yeah, he's he's a shill. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> There's something kidding. to be said with making the best of what you have. Yeah, oh, definitely. You know what? These cameras nowadays, they're all good. They are. I did the Hoss Project all on film. Uh, oh, you did? I shot with um, 35 millimeter up to 6x9, a Fuji 6x9. I didn't know they made one. That's a large negative to work yeah, with. It sure is. Yeah. Half, half the surface area of a 4x5 negative. So we're yeah. a, lot, a lot. So I shot some night work at 3200 ISO Ilford film. Yeah. The cover picture was is 3200 ISO with a 6x9 negative. I yeah. wanted the images to appear as if they might have been taken during the 1930s. Mm hmm. Folks living on the street, it might as well be at the time of the Great Depression. Yeah, you must have uh, attracted some attention with that big camera. I didn't pull it out until I had, it was in a bag until I had had a conversation. Uh, okay. The person, if I could make a picture of them. It's maybe a small difference in wording, um, but a change in wording, however slight, is a change in meaning, however slight. Sure. I I don't want to take anything from someone, so I didn't ask if I could take their picture. Yeah, I asked make if I could make a picture of them. Yeah, yeah. What um, what percentage of the people would turn you down? Twenty percent, maybe. Yeah, very few. At the most at the most. Yeah, and for you know, for good reasons. They're their reasons, but I assume they're good reasons. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, if somebody doesn't want their photo taken or made then you know yeah that's fine who can blame them the um did you process that film yourself i did and, i processed it and scanned it on an epson flatbed scanner okay okay yeah my son has a six by nine he's got a pentax and uh, i'd love to buy it from him but he doesn't want to give it up i did some of the work with a pentax six seven yeah. Oh, so well, maybe that's what a six seven. Yeah. And well, Fuji makes a six seven, a six eight, and a six nine. <clears throat> and I use the six by nines. Okay. And I also use the Pentax six seven and some uh, Nikon thirty five millimeter. Wow. Well, sweet spot I found for me with film was a six forty five negative. It's a little more than twice the size of a thirty five millimeter negative. You get twenty shots on a roll. It's still a large enough negative that when you scan it, you've, you've got a lot of information to work with. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a lot of work. So speaking of the book, um, how did you do it? I mean, what, what was the uh, experience like? Well, I went from city to city. I just, I would often just arrive in a city and seek out the homeless. No, but I mean, once you have all the shots in the can, how did you make the book? What so did you do? I mean, you know, you must have had hundreds and hundreds of images to choose from. Or thousands, right. Thousands, yeah. Well, I have all the negatives in, in uh, notebooks, of course. Mm -hmm. I, I'd scanned all of them. I didn't print all of them by any means, but I scanned them, and, and then I... I would print a contact sheet. I would scan, scan a sheet of negatives and print that. And I probably had several hundred images that I uh, edited down to closer to a hundred. Then I, I sequenced them. I, I figured that the simple um, book design, although I've seen some beautiful work, um, Matthew Black Black's book Geography of America, hmm. documenting poverty. Um, Matthew Black is with Magnum. It's beautiful work. And the design of the book is way beyond anything I could have conceived myself. But I wanted to keep the but price that I, I funded this myself. So I wasn't going to be able to spend the money on an, a lot of design work. So I just 
figured uh, the American's book was a simple design and it was good enough for uh, Frank. It was good enough for me. I just have a, <laughs> a photograph on one side and a city name on the facing page. Yeah. I just kept it simple. Yeah. So did you, um, I mean, how did you, how did you make your final selections? Did you have somebody help you or do you make all the decisions yourself? I have uh, several photography friends from Santa Fe. Mm. Who I, I gave them 200 images or so and asked them, uh, you know, what, what are the strongest ones here to you? And then when I got that down, we looked at it again. And I said, which ones do I have an attachment to that you think need to go? I'm seeing something here that the average yeah. person isn't going to see. And yeah. I don't know what might be behind my thinking in some cases. Maybe I have a fonder memory of the conversation I shared with that person. And mm -hmm. that memory is affecting my judgment about whether the image is strong. Yeah. In, in landscape photography, the a temptation is to uh, assign more value to an image because it took longer to get to That's the say. point and took more effort or maybe more danger. Uh -huh. And so now you have an attachment to that image just because of the effort that went into making it. Doesn't necessarily mean it's the strongest of the images. So they helped me work through that. Yeah, because it is. It's real hard to let go. I mean, you want the viewer to have the same or as strong of an emotion looking at the photo as you have towards it. And sometimes that's hard to get across if, if you're still attached to the original feeling when you made it. I'd like for the, I'd like for people to meet everyone that I had a chance to meet, but there just yeah. weren't enough pages for that. So, I mean, how did you, once you got your selections down, I mean, how did you sequence it? Of course, it's by city, but then the city's not in any particular. No, they are. I laid, them all out. I laid them all out on the studio floor, eight yeah. by ten. Oh, so oh, oh. And I just kept moving them around until the sequence felt good to me. It's easier in a way. Maybe, um, of course, now I'm not a book designer, so my view about this may be uninformed. It seems to me a little easier to sequence images if they're not on facing pages. You don't have to consider the face. It's true. They, they, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It doesn't mean there's still not a sequence because, of course, there is. Right. But it, it, it makes it a little easier if you don't have images on facing pages. So I just went through that process. And then I um, found a designer who could create. I basically created a, a book in blurb. Mm -hmm. And then I sent that to a designer and I said, can you essentially recreate this for me in InDesign? And then I worked through a printing company called Artron, Artron America. Oh. Arthur Harrison had suggested them to me. Um, uh, they print uh, in China. So, so yeah. the book was actually printed in China. And I now have 1,500 copies in an air-conditioned storage unit here in, in Sedona. Wow. Maybe wow. about four. I took a book into a book, a photography book store in Santa Fe a few weeks ago when I was in town. And they agreed to show to, to take the book in inventory. But the first thing the gentleman said to me, he asked how many I had printed. And then he said they didn't have a smaller minimum. <laughs> <laughs> I may be a part-time book salesman for quite some time. Well, at least it's timeless. It's timeless. I, I'm giving the net proceeds away to organizations that are serving the homeless. Yeah. It makes it easier, a little easier for people to buy a book, perhaps. Are you working to get in, into other bookstores? I think like Strand in New York is, is a very popular. I mean, they, they carry lots of photo books. Yeah, I actually need to begin to wrap my mind around about how, how to now market this book. Yeah, man, I, and I certainly don't know. But I, I know a number of photographers, maybe primarily New York photographers, who have, have books in the strand. Well, I will make a note of that. You could probably you could sell them on Amazon. That's 
probably going to be a way to do it, right? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I don't know how to go about it. Just popped into my head. Yeah, well, it. I mean, it's really beautiful. I mean, the photos look great. I can see why you wanted to get it printed, you know, at a um, a dedicated book printer because you know they're going to be consistent. You know, I've heard um, with Blurb, I, I've seen a lot of good stuff coming out of, out of Blurb, but uh, one guy um, told me that. You know, when you because you're ordering them one at a time, print on demand. Uh, one day somebody in Kansas City could print print them. Another day it could be somebody up in Maine or or whatever. It just depends on you know has, who has the capacity to do it that day. I've heard and that so as well. Yeah. The other thing for me was to, and the reason I printed fifteen hundred was to get the price per copy down enough that uh -huh. there'd, there'd at least be the chance of having. And proceeds to share with some homeless organizations. Yeah. That wasn't going to happen if the books were $100 a piece. No. Yeah. 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 They're pricey. But, you know, if it's one you like and, and it gives you a lot of joy, it's well worth it. And you can learn a lot, too. You can certainly learn a lot from, from your work. And, and I tell you, I was so glad to see it in print. I mean, I... I'm in the business of a digital publication, and it certainly has its benefits because, you know, we're not paying to print and ship and everything. But there's no substitute for holding that in your hand, whether it's a, a book or, or it's a physical print. And, uh, and your stuff looks really good. At it. And I, I see why you, you did it on film, too. I think it really makes a big difference. Back in 2014, I took a workshop at the Santa Fe Workshops with um, Arthur, excuse me, with, um, sometimes my, my mind goes blank here. Yeah, welcome to the club. Yeah, okay. Two film photographers, Kurt Marcus was one of them. And Kurt shot, Kurt passed away about a year ago. He shot film and worked in a wet darkroom until 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 he passed away yeah and i remember being with kurt and some uh, other photography friends and i i handed him my phone i wanted to show him an image on instagram which he had really very little knowledge of really yeah. we we're also there with baron woolman who was the first chief photographer for rolling stones magazine baron has since passed away uh -huh. but baron said to kurt um instagram is a fascinating and seductive world and kurt said about the wet darkroom he said i live in a fascinating and seductive world <laughs> so it was really that inspiration to shoot the so i realized from taking that workshop that i had slipped into spray and pray photography and i really wasn't i could look at 300 images i had taken one afternoon and i might find a good one but I didn't have much recollection of how I took that particular shot because I was taking so many so fast. Yeah, yeah. Film, you just have to slow down. And if you're shooting too fast, film going back to film is a way of slowing things down. It's not the only way. Self-discipline is another way. It's hard, yeah. Film really forces you to slow down. And you've got some skin in the game with every click of the shutter. Yeah, you do. You do. The um, it, so has it having that experience? Has it caused you to slow down shooting on your digital camera, or or not? Um, I have to be mindful of that. But, yeah, uh, going into manual mode will slow things down, even with a digital camera. Mm -hmm. And I've done that a fair amount on the street as well, just shooting in manual. If you're shooting in manual and you're zone focusing, you could still be shooting pretty fast. But. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, you were, before you were talking about feedback, you know, you get your, you know, your screen on your camera gives you feedback because of how, how you're doing. Did that make you nervous at first, shooting with only film? You're spending all this time and money and effort traveling around the country. 
shooting with film and you don't even know if it came out until after you process it. I mean, that must have been pretty, must have made you a little nervous at first. Since I had shot with film for so many years, starting back in 1972. Yeah. I didn't have that fear. And there was really something to be said for having to wait until I got home, develop those negatives. Mm -hmm. Even today, if I were to shoot some film and develop it, which I haven't done for about a year now, but I taking the top off the canister and pulling the reel out and beginning to spool the negative off the reel. It's, it, it's as exciting now as it was back in 1972 when yeah. I did my first roll of film. Yeah. Yeah. And then yeah. you're still not really clear about what you've got until you've made some contact prints or done some scans. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Are you, are you scanning 35 millimeter too? 35 up to this. I've actually, I was shooting four by five for a while. Once I got back into film, it wasn't too long before I had a, a Pentax six by seven, a Fuji six by nine, and a Toyo four by five. I've got one of those personalities where if some is good, more must be better. Yeah, uh, that's a sickness. <laughs> I mean, but I was just wondering, do you, would you scan 35 millimeter on a flatbed as well? I did it. Yeah, some of the images in the book are scanned, 35 millimeters scanned on this Epson flatbed. Huh. Well, I have a scanner. You probably see it over my shoulder there. Of course, nobody else can. It's my son's scanner. It's a Minolta, not super high resolution. And it's real hard to keep the, keep the uh, negatives clean, clean enough to get a decent scan. You know, it surely shows the dust. Well, that's the challenge everywhere, and it yeah. was particularly challenging. In, in this, it's dusty out here in the Southwest. Oh, that's for sure. That's for sure. I never thought about that. Well, well, Mark, yeah, we can go on about this stuff all day. So, um, I think before we go, well, I don't know. Is there anything else? Do you have any questions for me, or anything? Uh, anything else you want to talk about? I do not, but I've appreciated and enjoyed this conversation. Thank you. Yeah, me too. Me too. Yeah, it's really good to meet you in person. Likewise. Yeah. Too bad we didn't connect while you were here. But you didn't know I was here. I I, I love interviewing people in person. Uh, I just did one last week, and it was a lot of fun. We were sitting outside. It was a beautiful day. The birds were singing. That's going to be on the recording. So what? It's real life. It's a beautiful place. My daughter went to the University of Virginia. Oh, she did. Is that why you stopped in here? No, I didn't know that. It was on the route from to, to New yeah. Orleans. Yeah. Oh, that's good. Is she still in the area? She is now in St. Paul, Minnesota. Oh, wow. She was in Charlottesville about a week ago for business. Really? Yeah. Sorry, I missed her. <laughs> oh, well. Anyway. So um, why don't you tell us where people can find you and where they can find your book? So I have a website, schumannphoto.com, and there is a page on that website about the book with instructions about how people could order it if they want to. And I'll just, I'm, I'm also the, uh, the mailroom for this company. I'll be mailing the book to them. You got that too. Okay, so schumannphoto.com, and you spell it S-C-H-U-M-A-N-N, right? Right. Okay. You, you never know. A lot of people listening to podcasts are driving or they're walking or whatever, and, and uh, um, you know, they're not on the website, which, of course, we're going to have it, you know, have a link to your site uh, in the show notes for the podcast. But spelling is the make same. sure they know. The spelling is the same as a German composer. Oh, there you go. On photo.com. Okay, cool, cool. All right, Mark. Anything else? Oh, you've got uh, you're on uh, Facebook for sure. Instagram, you're on Instagram? Instagram is Mark Schumann Photography on Instagram. Okay, very good. We'll put all those links in there too. Thank you, Bob. Thank you for your time. Well, thank you. I really appreciate it. It was a lot of fun. Okay, keep making good images. Your thoughts about the show 
go a long way in helping us decide on the guests and the subjects that we include in each episode. So please take a few moments to write a review in Apple Podcasts or whatever service you use to stream your podcasts. It helps us know if we're on the right track and it helps others to find and enjoy the show. The editor of Street Photography Magazine is Ashley Refo, and our audio engineer is Russell Boyd from WeBit Studios, found at webitstudios.co.uk. I'm Bob Patterson, and this is the Street Photography Magazine podcast, a service of Street Photography Magazine. <music>